Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? If you're a gardener or a botanizer that spent any time in Eastern North America or Eastern Asia, you may have noticed there is a lot of overlap in the flora. These two areas of these respective continents share a lot of plant families and genera. There is a pattern among some of this, which usually equates to Eastern Asia having far more representatives of different genera than Eastern North America, but that is by no means the rule. Regardless, this is a pattern that has fascinated scientists for over a century, and our guest today has chipped off his own chunk in trying to understand why we see these patterns across flora shared between different continents. Joining us to discuss this is Dr. Anthony Melton, and you're going to hear all about his fascinating approach to understanding the so-called Eastern North America, Eastern Asia floristic disjunction. I don't want to steal any of his thunder, so let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Melton. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Anthony Melton, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I will admit this is round two. Our attempt, is, unfortunately, technology being what it is, threw us a little bit of a roadblock, and you're an amazing sport for wanting to do this again. But welcome to the podcast. For those of you uh, that haven't heard the non-existent file we recorded before, how about we start off with an introduction? Tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me on again. Uh <laughs> My name is Anthony Melton. I'm a postdoc at Boise State University. Currently, I'm working on genomics of drought adaptation in Artemisia tridentata based in big sagebrush. Uh, and so I'm broadly an evolutionary biologist interested in plants and how they've adapted and pretty much just gotten to where they are. Excellent. So many great things combined into one. And I'm always prefacing these genetic talks with the fact that I'm a complete novice. So if these questions seem a little shallow, I apologize, but what got you interested in evolutionary biology and was it always kind of centered around plants or did plants just offer a unique system, a fun system to start asking really big science questions? Yeah, so I don't remember exactly what got me into evolutionary biology specifically. That's just something that I've always kind of been interested in. And then the plants happened pretty much when I started grad school. So I didn't really know anything about plants until my very last semester of <laughs> undergrad. Nice. And then I was in a plant lab for my master's degree. And it's been plants pretty much ever, ever since, you know, I found out that plants are really cool. They do weird things. And it's just a really interesting system to work with. Awesome. And indeed, uh, from a ecology perspective, I can certainly agree with the plants do weird things, but from the little hints and pieces I get from other people doing, you know, related genetic evolutionary work with plants, it sounds like plants do things that not even animals do when it comes to evolution. There's a lot of weird stuff going on. We don't have to go into major detail, but is that true? Am I assuming right? Yeah, I think so. So I mean, like, I'm, I'm sure there are plenty of animals that do weird things, <laughs> but you know, like Plants love to hybridize. There's tons of polyploidy in plants, which leads to all sorts of really neat evolutionary innovations. Um, I mean, I know there's polyploid animals too, but I don't think it's quite as common Right. animals. Right. And I've gotten those emails correcting me that they do exist, but there are exceptions to the rule that polyploidy generally doesn't work once you get into the animal realm. But 
Yeah, I mean, there's so many different chunks you can carve off. And already, as you hinted at, where you're at right now is is almost in a big way kind of different from where you began your, your doctorate work, which is really what connected us in the first place. And so you study this thing that has fascinated me for a long time, but you drill into it in a way that helps it make sense in a bigger picture, deep time sort of way. And that is the Eastern North America, Eastern Asia, floristic disjunction. I almost got through that. (laughs) Floristic disjunction. What is that and what attracted you to that in the first place? So the floristic disjunction is really neat. So Eastern Asia and Eastern North America, uh, the flora of these two regions are actually more similar to each other than they are to like neighboring regions. So uh, I'm here in Boise, Idaho, right now in Western U.S., which is floristically really distinct from hmm. you know, Eastern North America. I grew up uh, in Alabama and lived in Florida while I was working on my PhD. The flora between these two regions are really, really different. So, like when I was moving out to Boise, I remember I got to a certain point on the drive where, like, I just recognized almost nothing. <laughs> but in East Asia, so there's actually a lot of shared genera and so a few dozen genera that actually occur only within these two regions Hmm. which is something that's really really neat and that's the whole idea behind a disjunction of any type obviously we're talking plants here but it's just a shared flora separated by some distance right and in this case it's oceans and continents worth of a distance very strange and where do you begin as an evolutionary biologist to try to understand this? We'll get into sort of the reasons why and some of the hypotheses as to w- how it came to be, but where do you start to carve out an understanding of of a shared flora separated by thousands of miles? Yeah, luckily for me, this is something that's been of interest to like biogeographers and biologists for a really long time. Mm. So there's been you know, a lot of floristic work documenting the species that occur in the two regions and the you know the similarities between the two flora have been noted for a really long time. So for someone like me, you know, who's sorry, early in my career studying this stuff, mm. I, I have a lot to build on. And so of course, you know, like after taxonomy, floristics and stuff like that, getting into some of the biogeographic processes that hmm. may have you know, put these sister species or sister clades in you know, almost opposite sides of the planet. You know, the, those kind of processes, I think, be you know, next big step forward in really understanding what's going on here. Right. And so you can operate under the assumption that if we're sharing genera and and entire clades of organisms that aren't shared even with neighboring regions of our continent, uh, you you get this idea that at least at one point these areas were connected. Uh, But the, the pattern that I've at least kind of gotten a hint of between this disjunction is that here in North America, we may have maybe one or two representatives of a genus. Then you go over to Asia in places like areas of Eastern China, and suddenly you have 10 representatives of that genus. Is that a pattern that kind of holds true throughout a lot of the lineages? I mean, obviously, there's exceptions to every rule, but kind of generalizable? Yeah. So in general, there's, I mean, number one, just more species in East Asia. It's a much more species-rich region. I think there's about 1.5 or 1.6 times as many oh, wow. plant species in Eastern Asia than Eastern North America. Huh. And then when you have a genus that's disjunct between the two regions, it tends to be more species rich in East Asia. Okay. And obviously there's a million different ways you can 
try to understand that, but you took sort of the genetic evolutionary route. And did you look at any specific genera? Was it sort of a broad spectrum of, of groups that you pulled in to, to start doing this work? Yeah. So we focused a lot on species pairs because, I mean, that's a really you know simple comparison. You have <laughs> two species, so just directly compare one to the other. And then for the genera, we had just a, a few a uh, few genera that we were able to get samples for and actually have a, a well-resolved phylogeny too. Because that's something that I think is really important when you're looking into any sort of you know process, whether it's like biogeography, molecular evolution, whatever. You have to understand the relationships of the species you're interested in. Mm. Yeah, so that one always gets me because it's easy for a novice such as myself to assume, oh, we figured it out. We have a perfect family tree, but that really isn't the case, especially for a lot of I would say more obscure plant groups, which oftentimes if you're doing wild species, that tends to be the case is they're pretty obscure. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, like you said, we have a pretty good understanding of like family level phylogeny, but once you get down into the genera and species level relationships, it gets a bit more murky there. And I mean, we're all the time people are studying genera and, you know, finding out relationships among species that we didn't know about before. Yeah. And so I apologize in advance if this is taking us down a weird rabbit hole that you <laughs> don't want to or can't really elaborate on. But why is there so much confusion? And I know it frustrates people when names get changed, species get moved out of one family sometimes even and into something completely different. But like, is it because we just don't sequence an entire genome? I mean, how can you look at one group a bunch of different times and everyone seems to get a different answer as to how they're related with one another? Yeah. I mean, now that we've gotten into like, you know, it's, it's pretty simple to get molecular data now for big phylogenies and it's getting cheaper and cheaper too. So we, we're just getting better and better resolution on the relationships. And of course, when all we had were say like morphological data to use to resolve these relationships, mm -hmm. I mean, convergent evolutionary processes happen and <laughs> definitely led us to a, a lot of you know, misunderstanding of misplacement of species into you know, like wrong genera, wrong families too. So yeah, just in general, just our, our ability now to get more and more sequence data and analyze it's definitely leading to a lot of better understanding of species relationships. And I mean, like you mentioned, new taxonomy all the time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think in my experience, few things create more ire among the general botanically interested public than a big taxonomic shift. But here we go. <laughs> It's all part of the process. We're getting more refined answers, right? Yep, awesome. exactly. It's science, man, right? That's <laughs> how we do it. It is. We're, we're, we're getting less wrong, I think, is one of the best ways I've heard it put. But from an evolutionary perspective, there's a lot of ways I can imagine you could attack this idea of this disjunction to try to understand it. So what did you specifically set out to, to answer? Or what kind of questions did you have going into this work? For the disjunction that actually just started as a side project when oh. I, I started my, my PhD. And so originally it was looking at rates of molecular evolution within disjunct genera. Uh, and so we had a bunch of transcriptomes for species of disjunct genera. And so I was able to use those to you know look at rates of molecular evolution within all these different genes and see if species in Eastern Asia uh, if there's some sort of regional effect, so whether it's like ecology or something driving rates of molecular evolution to increase speciation, leading to that, you know, big species richness anomaly that we mentioned earlier. Okay. 
fascinating. So it is this, this sort of operating procedure or assumption that maybe there is an explanation genetically on an evolutionary sense as to why China or anywhere in temperate Eastern Asia ends up with so many more representatives more often than you see in Eastern North America, if I'm hearing you correctly. Yep, exactly. Whew, that is a task in and of itself. And what the <laughs> side project? Okay. <laughs> and so did you find this ended up like consuming a lot more time than what would be expected out of a side project? Well, well the side project got going, going really well. And then at the end of you know the first side project, I just ended up with more questions and the <laughs> side project kind of uh, evolved and <laughs> I was making way more progress with that than what was going to be my main project. So got flipped. Fascinating. That's a great lesson in any aspect of work, especially in education and, and grad school is be ready to pivot in a big way. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that, that seems to happen. I've talked to a lot of people who, you know, they think my dissertation is going to be on this one thing. And then as they go along, stuff happens, kind of find yourself drawn in one direction over another, new questions pop up. Oh, yeah. I was just actually having that conversation with a friend today is just how much did your dissertation evolve from year one to year three to whenever you <laughs> finished? And it's none of us ended up having anything remotely resembling what we started with. But that's cool. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. Yeah. And so when you set out to understand how this works from a genetic standpoint, you mentioned sort of rates of evolution. And this is something that I hear a lot in the genetic world is like molecular time clocks and rates. And how can you look at the genes of an extant organism, something that's alive here essentially today, and say something about the evolutionary history of that entire lineage? I mean, how does that whole thing sort of work itself out scientifically? So I mean, for the species pairs, so when you have like one species in East Asia, one in Eastern North America, you can compare sequences of genes to like what I did was compare them to an outgroup. So hmm. compare them both to the same species that's closely related and then look for differences in how different the Eastern Asian species is to the outgroup or the Eastern North American species is to the outgroup. And then you know, when you have a phylogeny, you can uh, estimate uh, the different rates of molecular evolution, so rates of change within the sequences over the phylogeny, and then do comparisons along branches, among clades. Uh, yeah. Wow. So really kind of assuming that there is a sort of background rate going on and, and kind of checking things against that background level uh, as sort of a control, I guess. Yeah. And so, I mean, yeah, that's pretty much exactly what I was doing with the, the outgroups for the species pairs. And then there's a lot of different ways to do those kind of reconstructions over phylogenies, you okay. can uh, you know, generate a null model and then compare the you know, calculated rates of evolution to that null model. Yeah, I mean, get, it can get complicated. Yeah, I can imagine. That's why molecular stuff just uh, never panned out for me, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but when you set out with this idea in mind, did any sort of truth come of this hypothesis that it could just be that species in Eastern Asia speciated faster or are they more predisposed to evolutionary change? Or did you find sort of a counter argument in there somewhere? Yeah. So we didn't really find any differences in the rates of molecular evolution that would explain differences in species richness. I mean, there's definitely been more speciation, less extinction in Eastern Asia, clearly because okay. you, know, you have more species but I, none of it seemed to be related to region and rates of molecular evolution. 
Interesting. I, I'm attracted to this idea, even though you didn't find it, that there could be some sort of predisposition to a lineage to evolve faster or something like that. I mean, is it might not have proven to be true in this instance, but is there cases where that may play out that way? I mean, that to me is just fascinating to think a genetic accident could lead to just more species today than another group. Yeah, yeah. So there's definitely been... I mean, rates of molecular evolution fluctuate over phylogeny. So you can find really high rates of molecular evolution in some clades where it's sister clade, it's slower. Um, but, you know, we didn't find that in this case, at least, you know, not relative to the region that they were in. Okay. And so in this instance, there's no evolutionary sort of reason per se in the genetics as to why there's more. So that opens the door to like, okay, what are some other possibilities? And did you get any hints as to like favored hypotheses that seem to be more supported to kind of explain the disparity in, in just biodiversity between these two disparate regions? Yeah. So after the, the molecular evolution, I started looking more into macroecology. I did a lot of work with niche models. And I mean, what a, a lot of research has shown is that the environment of East Asia is a lot more heterogeneous. So there's mm. a lot more topographical heterogeneity. There's more climatic heterogeneity as well. And I think one of the most well-supported hypotheses right now is that there's just been higher rates of allopatric speciation. So species becoming geographically isolated mm. and then speciating that way. Okay. So essentially like Eastern North America has the White Mountains and the Appalachian Mountains, but Eastern Asia's got <laughs> just in a way more topography and and potential for isolation which yeah you leave things alone for long enough and weird stuff starts to happen essentially right exactly wow and and what really amazes me about your work and and something i really respect in what you do is that shift you just talked about to go from building phylogenies understanding rates of molecular evolution and then being like let's run some niche models like <laughs> Those two things could have been PhDs in and of themselves. So how did you, as, as just an individual, a human trying to function as, in, in a healthy way, like how do you make that shift mentally and, and academically? I mean, that's a huge change in sort of pace and approach to this sort of topic. Yeah. Uh, luckily for me, I've always found myself in a very collaborative environment. Nice. So I've always had people who are very happy and willing to help me do stuff, even <laughs> if I had no clue what I was doing when I got started. Nice. Um, I figure at some point I, I will do something that like I already know how to do. It hasn't <laughs> happened yet, but yeah, like where I did my PhD, everyone was very collaborative, super willing to, to you know, jump in on an idea and help develop it. And then, you know, same thing here. So, you know, I moved from East Asia, North American floristic disjunction to genomic drought adaptation in you know, Western North American plant. So different, but again, find myself in a collaborative environment, which makes a big difference. And I can imagine, you know, for your future career moving forward from here, uh, you know, these sorts of experiences really set the groundwork for, for realizing that. I think a lot of people think science can be very siloed and in many ways it can be. It's you get protective about your data, your questions, that sort of stuff. But, you know, this sort of collaborative stuff, really pushes the envelope, helps us extend our inferences. The more data we get, the better we can understand our world. And I mean, I think you've really got a solid foundation in seeing how effective collaboration can be. And that extends beyond academia, of course. Oh, yeah, totally. And, you know, when you get people that like maybe they're not in the, the same sort of subdiscipline of biology getting together to tackle a certain kind of problem, I think you end up sort of thinking outside the box just because people have different perspectives on things depending on whatever they're 
background in biology is. And so it just leads to, I guess, better ways, more ways to go after a certain question or problem in science. Yeah. And so kind of coming back to these species pairs, I mean, is there any genera or species in general that really surprised you or, or kind of threw you a curveball? Any sort of unique ones that stood out during this process uh, that, that kind of helped frame this story a little bit more solid in your head? So yeah, as far as like the rates of molecular evolution goes, I guess I was more surprised by just the the lack of difference, especially in the, the <laughs> species pairs. All the results showed that uh, you had pretty even rates of molecular evolution for all these different genes between these two species. Um, and, you know, across the phylogenies, we didn't really see any changes that would explain the species richness difference. And so that to me was the most surprising thing, which I guess that's the thing that really led me to start thinking about other potential you know, hypotheses to explain why does Eastern Asia have so many more species? Yeah. I mean, that in and of itself is pretty wild when you think of the time and space that is involved in this. You know what I mean? To think that things could be essentially on opposite sides of the planet and roughly speaking, be doing similar things. I mean, that just kind of goes back to this predisposition. Like maybe there's an assumption here that you could say like, oh, this genus just kind of keeps doing regardless of where you put it. It just, if it's got more options to fill, it can fill those, but they're going to do it at roughly the same pace. I mean, that to me is almost as remarkable as if not more than things going completely different. Oh yeah, for sure. And you know, a lot of these species have really similar ecologies and you can even look back at fossil records of like Nolumbo, there's a species in East Asia, species in Eastern North America. And when you look at the fossil record, you can see that uh, even though you can find fossils in like Colorado, South Dakota, so little different from say like the, the Southeast where I'm used to seeing right. them. When you look at the associated fossils, you can see that they were at some point in similar ecologies, similar wetlands, similar uh, temperate pluristic assemblages. So, I mean, like you say, even through all this geological time, they've you know, largely conserved this you know, particular ecology, which is wow. really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to have representatives still alive today doing that, it just kind of ties you through time in, in a big way. But thinking of that in the perspective of deep time, I mean, at some point, these were a shared flora that has since diverged. And so how with your molecular clock and, and all this sort of stuff, I mean, do we have an idea of like, when was the last time these things were kind of contiguous? <laughs> Yeah, so there's been a several different disjunction events. So it didn't all happen at once. Uh, for some species, the disjunction happened just a few, like five to ten million years ago. Hmm. And then for other genera, the disjunction happened, you know, maybe thirty or forty million years ago. Oh. And then for some genera, there's actually multiple disjunction events within that one genus. So you know, Cornus, for example, has. Uh, two different clays that has both North American species and East Asian species. Oh, wow. Jeez. I mean, just this idea that this is, you, you kind of think like, oh, the odds of this happening, it had to have happened once and that is just how it goes. But the fact that it was repeated and these patterns kind of maintain themselves regardless of which groups you're looking at, uh, just another mind blow, right? Uh, like this is a great example of like, even though your hypotheses didn't sort of pan out in terms of confirmation, the story you're still able to tell is much richer, much fuller and, and pretty wild in and of itself. So this is a great, like, don't get attached to the hypothesis. Let the data tell you what it's going to tell you. Oh, exactly. And like I said, you know, even though 
we saw this one result and it was a negative result, it still led me to start asking more questions. So I, I just ended up with more questions than I had answers, which is you know great for a scientist. Yeah, exactly. That's how careers are built, right? <laughs> and and so thinking of of the sort of niche modeling ecological explanation for this, are there patterns in sort of okay, so some of the forest genera are shared, but like, okay, there's way more alpine representatives or something like that. Where's what kind of ecological or niche processes started coming up at, at least sort of informing what might be driving this? Is it purely topography and in, in isolation or something, you know, a little bit more fleshed out? Uh, so I think the, I mean, the topography definitely has a lot to do with it because the, the climate, you know, when you're looking at, you know, geographical scale species distribution, uh, you know, the climate's going to be really closely related to topography. Hmm. I think really what I was focusing on was looking at niche space within species distributions and doing comparisons of occupied niche space to see are they similar are they different and in general really the thing that we found is that the distributions of you know, eastern asian species tend to have way more niche space than hmm. the eastern north american species which probably really closely ties back to that difference in spatial heterogeneity of the environment in eastern asia right so just more available essentially exactly wow and when you talk about niche space, I think people hear that and they go, oh, okay. But like when you start to dig into it, even as a scientist, it is odd. <laughs> it's it's kind of a hard thing to get your head wrapped around because it's nebulous. It's, as they say, n-dimensional. What kind of parameters were you using personally? Because it can vary from uh, you know question to question, project to project. Yeah, it, it can, exactly. And I mean, there's a ton of different ways to define niche, to measure niche space. And so uh, what I've ended up with is looking at sort of a two-dimensional niche space, so focusing on climatic variables, mm. and then using a sort of principal component analysis-based method to pretty much assess like how much climatic niche space is this species oh, wow. occupying. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah, it's it's when people bring it up, like, why do you think of this? Why do you think of that? I'm like, because there's only so much time in a year, <laughs> let alone. Yes. The day to day, and and even just trying to get things down to a couple dimensions is monumental. But what's neat is you're starting to get a more variable understanding of just how much these broad brushstrokes can make a difference, uh, especially when it comes to sort of the tail ends of these phylogenies. And this kind of lends itself to a lot of different areas of research. I mean, you can talk a lot about like, why does North America, Eastern North America have so many successful invasive species from Eastern Asia? Hmm, might be climate matching, those sorts of things. So this can inform a lot of other ecological processes, which kind of lends to that sort of collaborative experience with different expertise. You'd never know what people can do with this kind of work. Yeah, it's been really neat. And I mean, like you said, uh, a lot of species from East Asia can be successful invaders in East North America. I mean, largely because the climates of the two regions are you know, fairly similar. A lot of it temperate, uh, you know, some subtropical, tropical, but you know, in general, you do see these disjunct species occupying fairly similar. Hmm. Uh, you know, definitely uh, no instances of niche divergence as far as the climate goes, but yeah, a, a lot of cases of fairly similar climatic niche space being occupied. Yeah. I mean, this is the stuff that keeps me up at night. You start thinking about, again, I mean, you think like 40 million years. Yeah, it's not 100 million years, but it's still 
tens of millions of years. It's a long time. Yeah, it's a unfathomably long time, and these processes are maintained. And 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 sort of the what I love about deep time is thinking, okay, these things happening today, it kind of gives us an idea that okay, things were different, but the processes were still unfolding in similar ways. It's just the players change, the areas change, continents move, <laughs> land bridges appear and disappear. Yeah. A lot of different processes going into play. Uh, like you said, land bridges, glaciation, continents moving, mountains coming up. Yeah. Which is, I think, you know, in thinking about what you were saying about the fossil record and how different North America is when you start traveling east to west and how quickly things change. I mean, mountain building, all these things lend to sort of those extinction rates too. And I'm sure prior to the Rockies and I'm, I'm sure many other geological events that people listening are gritting their teeth at me for, but things changed. And that's why we see extinctions. I'm sure Western North America and Eastern North America could have been more similar at some point, And there are shared genera, but far fewer. And that can explain a lot of the differences within our own continent. Oh yeah, for sure. And you know, you mentioned uh, extinction and potential similarity between Eastern North America, Western North America. Um, so like example that comes to mind, Nalumbo, where there's actually a few fossil species in hmm. like Northwestern North America. And so, you know, at some point that region was much more similar to Eastern North America than it is now, but climate change due to the you know, Rockies coming up and then glaciation further changing the environment there and sort of pushing distributions Southeast definitely had a big impact. Yeah. I mean, it can't be overemphasized how impactful glaciation has been on this continent and just how much it hit that reset button multiple times even, and just mm -hmm. it changed so much. And you know, I'm a Great Lakes kid growing up. And so like, I've always felt the effects, whether I realized it or not, of just how much glaciation can change a region. And, you know, from the genetic standpoint, I'm sure you've got even within that realm, plenty to play with. But what's fascinating now is that you've kind of gone from these big picture macroevolutionary patterns, biogeography, deep time to looking more at physiology. And I mean, when you really kind of, it's all DNA at the end of it, but how much of a shift has that been for you? It's definitely a bit different. Um, and especially like getting into like really genomic transcriptomic sort of processes. I'm still working with, you know, sequence data a lot, mm -hmm. but I'm using a lot of different methods to analyze it and look at the effect that it has on, like say, stem model density or some other physiological response within you know, a particular plant. Wow. And so you've kind of gone, if I'm understanding correctly, from sort of looking at how different genomes can be from one another to looking more at like, what does this gene code for and, and how is it changing when you look at it doing different things in different individuals? Yeah, pretty much. So looking at, say, like if you have a certain suite of genes, do they get expressed in the same way across these different populations? If you, you know, just really stress them out with drought <laughs> or, you know, is it maybe not expression that's different. Maybe it's the sequence within the gene that leads to, you know, a difference in protein conformation that better confers drought response, stuff like that. Nice. Well, we're definitely going to have to get you back on to flesh out some more of your current work, but this has been fascinating. I mean, if people want to dig up more information on, you know, your research, the stuff you've been doing, but also bigger picture stuff related to this disjunction, where do you recommend they go looking? So let's say I have a website, anthonyemelson.com. I have a Google Scholar page. I think those would probably be the two best ways to keep up with me. I have a Twitter page, but I do not really tweet much. Nice. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
It's an evil place. Don't do it. <laughs> it is. It's yeah. It, it it looks pretty rough there. I don't. Yeah. I just I just sit back and watch. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Dr. Melton, this is awesome. I think you're doing some really mind blowing work. Your thank work you. gives me goosebumps. Uh, like I said, kind of keeps me up in a, in a good way. In a good way. Uh, but yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about it. You've made a very complex idea much more simple for us to understand. And I think you've probably set a lot of people down a rabbit hole of of uh, <laughs> plant searching. <laughs> it's fine. I'm going down a rabbit hole too. It's awesome. Fine. Perfect. Well, again, thank you and hang in there. Stay healthy and yeah, happy. Awesome. Happy, thank you very much for having me here. Of course. Cheers. All right. That wraps up another fantastic conversation. I thank Dr. Melton for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us. And I hope you will take a deeper dive into the world of the Eastern North America, Eastern Asia, floristic disjunction. It's fascinating stuff, and it applies to so many aspects of botany, ecology, and evolution. Of course, if you would like to support this show, you can always do so over at patreon.com slash plants. Monthly contributions from my patrons ensure that this show can continue from one week to the next, so consider becoming a patron today. You can also pick up a copy of my book as well as merch and all of those links, including links for every episode I put out here, can be found in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. But that is it for me this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.